Well, at least here you'll be treated with dignity. Now strip naked and get on the probulator. Exterminate. Computer, status report. Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. No! Wrong! Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Welcome, welcome everybody to the October 2nd, 2010 edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Deep in Area 51, carefully raking the sand in my combination Zen Garden Sand Trap in the underground 18-hole golf course built by the Army Corps of Engineers. I am the Dome. Joining the talk cast tonight from the Alston Brighton Hellmouth is our technical wizard and part-time cellular research investigator, Kriana. Hi, everybody. There we are. <laughs> From the Four Color Vault of Comics in Manchester, New Hampshire tonight, the man who earlier today spoke to the ghosts of Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster, collect Illustrator X. <laughs> Fighting for your rights in my satin tights. Oh, uh, and from... <laughs> that was a mental picture I need bleach to remove. Oh, my God. And the queen of queasiness, the woman who owns the only VHS copy of The Seven Doors of Hell, but refuses to buy the DVD of Jonah Hex, the pernicious debutante of the reanimated, the dead redhead. I'm starting to feel wicked. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Sorry, we okay. last <laughs> The show is over, everyone. Yeah, well, the show's over for some of us. For me, tonight, we have an incredibly uh, interesting guest and a gentleman who I have had the pleasure of uh, reading and listening to for many, many, many years tonight. Our guest tonight is a nuclear physicist, world-renowned author, lecturer, and investigator of those things that go twinkle in the sky and defy explanation. Some of his former books include Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience, Top Secret Majestic, Crash at Corona, The Roswell Legacy, and his newest book, Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories and investigation, Inventions They Declared Impossible. Ladies and gentlemen, Stanton T. Friedman. Stanton, I'm welcome to, to the be show. On. I'm glad to be on. You left out one of the key books, Flying Saucers and Science, 2008. Oh, my Lord, I did. I apologize for that. <laughs> well, you can, send, you can send everybody to my website, and they can see all of the books, uh, www.stantonfriedman.com. And, uh, you know, we'll put in a plug for the website and let it do the talking for the books and the DVDs and all that good stuff. But, uh, and when we, you know, when we post the podcast later on this evening, we'll have a link directly to your website right there. So our listeners who are listening to the podcast and who will listen to us on iTunes later on will be able to go directly to it as well. Sure. So Good. that's what we need. So let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, your latest book, Science well, Was Wrong. Yeah, it, it, it's a provocative title. And only two chapters deal with UFOs, uh, one by me going over all the stupid things uh, smart people have said that stood in the way of their getting to the truth about flying saucers, and my co-author, uh, Kathleen Marden, uh, with whom she did most of the work on Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. She's Betty's niece. Uh, she did a chapter on the conundrum of alien abductions, and uh, the book came out in July and is doing very well. And... Uh, you know, the crazy thing is, I've known for a long time that one of the biggest problems with getting the ancient academics and fossilized physicists who want to put down UFOs on board is their presumptions about technology. You can't get here from there, you know, which is an utterly stupid presumption, but follows in a long line of equally stupid presumptions that have stood in the way of progress for the last uh, 110 years, you know. Uh, and so we, I, we cite chapters and verse, and, you know, it, it's easy to laugh at the uh, astronomer who said man would never fly, and another one who said space travel is utter builds, British astronomer royal, no less. 
But there are consequences when we pay attention to people who are smart but know nothing about the subject about which they are uh, speaking out. And their speaking out has stood in the way of funding and support and research because the big shot said it can't be done. And there are consequences. There are thousands of people who died because of fighting against new medical treatments, for example. And in today's world, we have to be aware of that, that uh, we are often led astray by uh, credentialed people speaking out in areas about which they know nothing. So it, it was pretty clear in uh, ufology and this whole business about space travel. I mean, isn't it amazing? Here we are in 2010, and these guys are acting like the latest method of communicating lots of information over a distance is the Pony Express. Uh, I prefer the Internet, you know? Uh, but that's what it boils down to. They seem to be totally unaware of the huge amount of effort and money that have gone into looking at advanced propulsion systems. It's like the word nuclear never occurred to them. You know, uh, chemical stuff is not the only way to produce useful energy. Uh, when when I live you were here working for McDonald, I'm sorry, when you were working with McDonnell Douglas, weren't you working with nuclear aircraft and, and the possibility of... No, uh, no, that was with, with General Electric. I worked on nuclear aircraft. With okay. Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab, I worked on fission nuclear rockets. With Aerojet General Nucleonics, I worked on fusion nuclear rockets. Uh, my job was going to be the greatest thing uh, at McDonnell Douglas. Would you believe I was hired to figure out how flying saucers worked? They had money. They could spend a couple percent <laughs> of the money on their huge contract uh, about the manned orbiting laboratory. Uh, blue sky money, it was called. Unfortunately, as I was driving across the country to take up my job, my new exciting job, the program was canceled. <laughs> oh, Lord. You, you, you want a strange response. You walk into the employment office at McDonald Brothers, you give them the offer letter and stuff. And, you know, I'm reporting for duty here. And she says, uh, you realize we just laid off 5,000 people. And I said, yeah, I know. I heard about it as I was driving across the country. You know, they kept me on for three months. But, uh, you know, I got a long history. I think I've set a record for working on canceled government-sponsored research and development programs. But the <laughs> kicker is they were, all, they were always in industry. And recently, I, I, I've had to focus on, uh, it's a fact, that the academics seem totally unaware of the enormous amount of money and effort being spent outside of academia. Would you believe two people have told me if Roswell had happened, and I'm the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident, 1947, July. Right. Uh, if Roswell had happened, they'd have had to pull out all the, per, you know, half the professors in the country from academia. And I laughed and said, surely you're not serious. Are you really unaware of how many large, competent uh, labs there were created during World War II and that still exist now? You didn't and, how many are not even, and how many are not even I mean, known by academia? Much less, you know, well, I mean, they, they do live yeah. within kind of gilded palace. But I mean... It's called an well, ivory yeah. tower, thank you much. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, they're in the publisher parish business, and the guys in industry, like me, are let's get a job done business. And the three nuclear weapons labs, I looked this up several years ago, um, Los Alamos National Laboratory and Sandia Labs, which is in Albuquerque, and Lawrence Livermore up in the Bay Area in California, the three of them, several years ago, employed amongst them more than 20 thousand people and had an annual budget amongst the three of not only more than three billion dollars but that was more than the total budget of the national science foundation for all of its research and so you know where are these guys been uh, yes that we didn't publish or perish 
We put out classified reports. Okay. But it, it, it's, I'm truly incredulous. And when I say nuclear, I mean, yeah, I'm a nuclear guy. But there's a reason for talking about nuclear energy. There's more, uh, more bang per pound, if you will. And let me give two different lines of reasoning about that. One is uh, nuclear power for uh, killing people, bombs. Uh, you know, in World War II, a large bomb was a 10-ton blockbuster, 10 tons of dynamite, basically. And it made a pretty good mess on the ground. It had to be carried by a big airplane, a B-29. Let's say that was in 1943. In 1945, we produced our first atomic bomb. We used our first atomic bombs. Uh, they produced uh, as much energy as exploding 15,000 tons of TNT. So you go from 10 to 15,000. And then in 1952, continuing our work and figuring out better ways of killing people, we developed, exploded the first H-bomb. Uh, 1952, it made quite a bang. The fireball was three miles in diameter, and it produced as much energy as exploding 10 million tons of TNT. So in less than 10 years, we went from dumb old chemical bombs, 10 tons, to atomic bombs, 15,000, to hydrogen or fusion bombs, 10 million, and the Russians outdid us several years later. They tested one that released 57 million tons of TNT, as much energy as that. Now, there's no reason if you're smart and want to spend the money, you can't use this money for propulsion. And as a matter of fact, we have been producing nuclear propulsion systems. I think these guys are on another planet if they don't know about it. Uh, the Nautilus, <laughs> the first nuclear submarine, 1956, uh, and hundreds have been built since uh, by many different countries, not just the United States and Russia. That was the Nautilus. But the Navy expanded, and we now have nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. Now, they are kind of neat. They can go full tilt for 18 years without refueling. Think Whoa. of how many tankers full of oil you'd have to bunker C or any other kind that you can replace with one reactor or one set of reactors on board a nuclear-powered carrier. And you say, but wait a minute, Stan, you can't get that up into space. Well, that's true. You're not wanting to. But uh, let's face it, we have also operated nuclear fission rockets. Uh, I don't mean a little toy off in the corner. They were tested near Area 51 at the nuclear test site. Uh, the one I worked on for Westinghouse, oh, a small one, six feet in diameter, power level of 1,100 megawatts. That's half the power of Grand Coulee Dam. That was 1968, Westinghouse Astronuclear Lab. Now, a little bit later, 69. Los Alamos tested the Phoebus, P-H-O-E-B-U-S, nuclear rocket reactor propulsion. So it was bigger, about seven feet in diameter. Power level, 4,400 megawatts, twice the power of Grand Coulee Dam, even though only seven feet in diameter. Now, that's nuclear fission. We've tested them. Now, the program got canceled because nobody had guts enough to say, let's do something with these things. And essentially, now really we're still is. using, and essentially now we're still using rockets that are essentially firecrackers. Hmm. Yeah, chemical rockets. Exactly. Chemical rockets, you know, like burning uh, gas in your automobile kind of idea. And but remember, I haven't mentioned nuclear fusion yet. I mentioned H bombs, but I did a study of I worked on a study at Aerojet General Nucleonics of nuclear fusion for deep space travel. Now, one thing you got to say about fusion. Everybody who's advanced in this entire universe is going to know about fusion because that's how the stars work. Exactly. And everybody's going to ask, you know, where the heck is the energy coming from over there in that bright red or orange ball? We figured it out in 1938, we thought. We didn't put it to the test until 52. So if we've done it, we primitives, whose major activity is obviously tribal warfare, 
then other people have done it. Now, the neat thing about fusion is if you use the right stuff in the right way, you can kick particles out the back end of a nuclear fusion rocket that only have 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a dumb old chemical rocket. 10 million times. And yet we have these ancient academics and fossilized physicists and SETI cultists you know, study stands for silly <laughs> effort to investigate, you know. Right. Okay. Uh, well, you have these guys assuming you're stuck with chemical rockets. Well, How Stan, many can you get? Well, I think that the issue is that it, at, it gets to a point where they don't want to know. I mean, willful ignorance. Not. Yeah, willful ignorance just seems to be the barrier here. In fact, when I saw that the name of your book was Science Was Wrong, that's the first thing I thought was, well, of course, because people just fixate on an idea and then they filter out anything to the contrary. So the question is, how do we get past, you know, someone else's willful ignorance? We find leaders like Admiral Rickover, who pushed the nuclear submarine and nuclear carrier and all that sort of stuff. Uh, leadership is what NASA has been lacking as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I was in the space program, and everybody I talked to back in the 60s and 70s, we'd have a base on the moon already by now, uh, that we would have gone to Mars by now. It took guts, you know, except for President Kennedy's uh, directive of, you know, let's get a man to the moon and back safely by the end of the decade. NASA hasn't had a goal except to keep the money coming. That isn't enough. Uh, and they just and got a lot magic. of cuts, right? They just got a what? lot of cut. They just had a lot of layoffs, from what I understand. Well, they're not going anywhere. Why shouldn't they have layoffs? Oh, they don't cool. have a, a, a project, <laughs> a goal. Uh, it it it's weird, uh, you know. And it and they're aiding and abetting these SETI guys. Uh, can you imagine how silly it seems when you start looking at it? Uh, you heard the comments from Stephen Hawking. That they haven't come here yet, or we would have. If they had, we would have had a signal. You why know what? In the I, world, I, I can't why, believe why would it, somebody as smart as he would say something like that with the the evidence literally staring him in the face. Well, but he I mean, won't look at the evidence. None of the SETI people look at the evidence. Read their. I read their books. They won't read mine, of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think let's face it. Who who needs a radio telescope if aliens are visiting? And why would anybody out there use technology that is appropriate for the level of a primitive society like ours that's had radio for oh, 110 years, you know, being generous about it? Uh, surely they've learned a little things in the last uh, thousand, million, billion years. After all, just down the street. And this is discussed in great detail and captured the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. There are two stars, Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 reticuli. It's a constellation right. of reticuli. Right. Can't see them from here. You've got to go below the equator. Here are two stars that are only an eighth of a light year apart from each other. In other words, they got next door neighbors. That's 30 times closer than the sun is to the next star over. And uh, a little extra detail, they happen to be at least a billion years older than the sun. And from a planet around one looking over at the other, you can directly observe uh, not only the other star all day, but you can directly observe planets without much trouble. They're not out in the boonies from each other as we are. And so their situation it would certainly lead to development of interstellar travel. you got a neighbor to go to. And also, we tend to forget, every advanced civilization knows that there can be uh, terrible things happening to a planet. I mean, an asteroid might beat the heck out of it. It could have a nuclear war. There might be a supernova explode someplace nearby. Uh, you might have a plague, uh, global warming, and so forth. Uh, you want to explore the neighborhood to find another place to settle if bad things happen. And we know how to terraform places. I mean, look at Las Vegas 150 years ago. It surely wasn't a fit place for people to live. I mean, some people would say it isn't a fit place for them to live now. <laughs> right. oh, we're, we're, we're talking only in terms of making it 
livable, not what they do. With <laughs> I was going to say, don't let the first... Yeah, not lovable, right. <laughs> so, Stanton, when you're saying but, that science was wrong, you're not really saying science is wrong. You're saying scientists have become risk-free. They're afraid... Some you know, Buzz scientists... Al- yes. Buzz I'm Aldrin saying that said, some scientists have stood in the way of progress at great cost to society... And that there's some of them, those guys are still around today, also getting in the way. How do you get funding if some big shot says, oh, that's impossible? Uh, Are just some of them, you think just some, I'm sorry, I'm in biology. And if, if you think about, you know, there's a lot of quackery out there about stem cells, but that's because we really don't know what they can do yet. Not because we don't have the ability to figure it out. We've had it for a really long time now, but because stupid people in positions of authority said, oh, no, you can't do that. It won't work. That's nonsense. Right. What are what are all the catchphrases? <laughs> that goes against this book that I like. Called the Bible. <laughs> well, <laughs> Which is you purely know, fiction. I mean, sorry, it, what? There, there are some good, uh, I'll call them biological examples in the book of Science Was Wrong. Uh, one of my favorite people, Ignaz Semmelweis, uh, he, he was a doctor in Europe in the 1830s, 40s, that time frame. And he was a smart enough guy to figure out the answer to a real puzzle. How come in the biggest lying in a hospital around... Uh, the women that were being delivered by midwives, only two or three percent got childbed fever, which was invariably fatal. Uh, but when the men were taking care of things, they would do autopsies upstairs, uh, wipe their hands on their bloody aprons and come down and examine women and deliver babies. And 20 percent of their women developed childbed fever. Well, that's and Semmelweis figured out. Well, yeah, Semmelweis <laughs> figured out that the problem was that uh, they weren't washing their hands, to say the right. least. And uh, he instituted strict procedures, and uh, you know, nail brushes and stuff like that, and brought the percent down to two or three percent. However, his boss was not happy because. He was being insubordinate. That's not how we do things around here. Don't you know that the best doctors have the bloodiest aprons? Uh, And he was forced out of the hospital. This is before germ theory, you understand. And so thousands of women died, uh, and their babies uh, as well, because of this prejudice, bias, ignorance, ego, arrogance, whatever you want to call it. And the same kind of thing happened with the vaccination for smallpox. Smallpox was God's way of controlling the population. We don't want to give people vaccinations. And a lot of people died who could have been saved if people had been paying attention. And so, you know, right now we're going through something that is sort of equivalent to this, and it's miles away and the kind of stuff, but so-called global warming. That was my next question for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there's a whole chapter. There's a whole let's chapter. Let's talk in about the book. that chapter of yours. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, because because you begin with so-called global warming. Yeah. Why? There there are two separate it? questions here. One is: Does the climate vary? Yeah, of course it varies. That's what climate is all about. You know, this year, next year, not the same. Yesterday. Tomorrow it might snow where I live, but, you know, yes, it changes. The question is whether that change is associated with the activities of man. Now, if you believe these guys from the IPCC and uh, the Goreites, if you will, Al Gore, great scientist, as you know, uh, trained in the law somehow, not in science, but anyway, uh, evil CO2 is the problem. Now, of course, we powerful men know how to foul up the planet. It's all our fault. If we keep releasing CO2, you know, the water level is going to rise. And everything bad's going to happen. The don't, polar bears don't won't we find any friends. 
I, I, I'm confused well, because I thought we exhaled CO2. Well, we do exhale CO2, but ah, when you burn okay. <laughs> fossil fuels, when you burn fossil fuels, you produce CO2. The only trouble is that in the first place, CO2 is not the major greenhouse gas at all. Water vapor is. And it's very hard to predict because you got clouds and stuff like that, you know. And in the second place, there have been higher levels of CO2 without the world going to hell in a handbasket. And it, third, the models, the computer models, don't seem to work. Uh, the predictions over the last several years have been wrong. There are other things going on besides CO2. But these guys would have the Western countries spend hundreds of billions of dollars to pay off the poor third world countries because we have fouled up the atmosphere. Uh, they don't bother to say that every living plant on this planet needs CO2. It's not a, a pollutant. CO2 is vital to the growth of plants. That's and right. you raise the level a little, you increase the yield, you know. So finally, and I was finishing the book just as the tide was beginning to turn, so to speak, the notion that there was full scientific agreement about all this global warming stuff. There's no question. There's no scientist who disagrees. Now we see that there are lots and lots of scientists who disagree, who look at facts and data instead of bias and prejudice. And so it, it's a good example of where science is being trumped by arrogance, ignorance, personality, uh, job stability. I mean, the IPCC guys got, got a good deal. They got good jobs, government grants. They can publish, and they won't let anybody publish who disagrees with them, as turned up in some of these emails from East Anglia University. Uh, and so we, we handle that, uh, and I'm sure you're going to be hearing more about that, but there is growing, even the British Royal Society has changed its attitude. And boy, it takes a lot for those guys to change their attitude. But your book points out time and time again, and... and the more I read it, the more I began to agree with it, is that there seems to be this constant pull between science and politics, the politics yep. of the day. And for some reason, scientists don't get listened to as much in the short run. So they get shortchanged, and we, we suffer as a society because of it. Yes. Very well put. We suffer as a society because of it. And it's, you know, how many good ideas have been trashed and not allowed to be followed up on uh, because of the arrogance, the political stuff. And uh, I figured, what, what have I got to lose? Look, I'm 76 years old. I'm not looking for a, a job with some company or some, certainly with some university. <laughs> that would be the day. <laughs> you know, Stan, I, I, I don't have really a piled higher and deeper degree, you know. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting that you brought up um, people listening to authority figures speaking outside of their authority and then a, a vaccine-related anecdote because I think um, the anti-vaccine movement that's been going on lately, and again, I speak from more of a biological perspective, is a really good yep. example of that where people would rather listen to Jim Carrey and his girlfriend for their medical advice for their children. Mm -hmm. When the scientists have pro proven study after study after study comes out that says there is no link between vaccines and autism. The reason That's that the right. autism rate is rising is because of better reporting, better care, and the expansion of what is defined the as diagnosis. autism. So, like, and there are these doctors that are like on TV, like Oprah and Dr. Oz, and they just spout yeah. this nonsense. And people are like, oh, well, if Oprah has him on, he must be good. I'm going to listen to him. And then the whooping cough rate in California went up by, I think, 55%. What? Babies yeah. are dying. Babies yep. are dying. They're dying. Yeah, it, it's... And, and the, the, you picked out a, a good area, the... Uh, 
the medical stuff, uh, there's also strong resistance to anything that doesn't require expensive drugs. You know, we, we want to attack anything that doesn't require a prescription because the drug companies can't make money that way, I guess. There was a recent study about ginkgo biloba, and I had to read four different articles to finally find out. They said it was ineffective. And I'm looking, where's the dose they're using? And I finally found it, and it was like 270 milligrams a day. Well, uh, I know somebody very well who uses uh, about three times that much a day. And the right way to run testing, whether it's drugs or herbs or whatever you want to call these, uh, uh, is to run more than one dose, like three doses, because you're looking for both side effects and effectiveness. And you never know your first shot may be wrong, maybe 200 milligrams. You know, it's like giving people half an aspirin and say, obviously, aspirin doesn't help with taking care of headaches. Well, if you try half one and two, you know, it might work out differently. This is actually really related to the research that I do, which is on, like, bisphenol A and plastics and how that affects the body. And we we always laugh when... um, we read some of these papers that come out on it because they don't, there's BPA in everything, especially in like tissue culture, plastic wear, which is where all of these studies are coming from, which is where our study is coming from. But we are really careful and we know that if you are not careful about what you put in, you can add a little bit and not get any, any dosage effect. So there adding ridiculous amounts of estrogens and BPA, like in the nanomolar, micromolar range, and we're adding it in, say, the picomolar range. And because we can control very well for the baseline, we get a very, very different result. So the dosage is really critical, and a lot of people don't know or just don't care. (laughs) Kind of a sad world, isn't it? You know, there, there was a big study of a drug called cholestyramine. This isn't in the book, but I used to do a weekly science commentary for CBC Radio here in beautiful Fredericton, New Brunswick. And I here was all this fuss, and I finally got a hold of the paper and read it. Everybody should take cholestyramine because it will reduce heart disease. And it's a, it controls cholesterol levels. When you read the story, the summary made it sound like this is the greatest thing since peanut butter. Well, I read the whole article and found out that the very small benefit, the only people who did the study, and it cost millions of dollars, it was a placebo-controlled study, you know, uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled, that's the most expensive kind of study. Gold (laughs) standard. Yeah. The only trouble was the only people who were involved in the study were men over age 40 who were in the top small percentage of cholesterol levels. So that a drug might help them, it's like saying that everybody should take insulin because diabetics are benefited by taking insulin. And when I look at the back of the study, the little comments, you know, side of the problems, turns out there was a higher level of stomach cancer. Lower, slightly lower level of heart disease, but I don't want to trade off heart disease for stomach cancer. (laughs) Probably not a great idea. (laughs) And they were also suggesting that everybody over age two ought to be on this drug. And I'm saying, wait a minute. It was only men, and they were over age 40, and they were in the top few percent of cholesterol level. How can you extrapolate from that to the general population? simple fact of the matter is, as you know, is you can't. Yeah. You know, Cash. you got to look at things a little more carefully than that. <laughs> you know, sometimes scientists are bad enough, but the only people actually worse than egotistical scientists when they're, like, publishing these things are journalists who don't understand <laughs> and decide to write a sensationalistic headline that has nothing to do with the research. It's true. It, it's Uh, It's kind of a sad world. I've looked at some of the coverage. It was a good example of this. Uh, Last Monday, there was a press conference in Washington at the press club uh, about nukes and UFOs. Oh, Lord, yes. Oh, Lord, yes. About um, what? The stories are great. uh, But there was some... 
the Malmstrom Air Force Base, yes, and Robert Hastings' book about uh, UFOs and nukes, and Robert Salas, uh, he was at Malmstrom, and, you know, the guy upstairs is telling him that there's this huge thing over the gate, and then the 10 missiles go down one after the other. Now, that's scary stuff, and it's not new, and I think we need to take note of the fact that when you let guys run the show in missile launch sites, they got to be good guys. You know, they have to be talented, competent, and you're going to trust them with a finger on a button that could launch a, uh, a Minuteman missile a few thousand miles. Uh, they better be mentally stable. Is that a, you know, a good fair assessment? To- I, I, I <laughs> think yeah. that the people in charge of Let's appointing so, these you know. people and I have a very different estimation of mentally stable. <laughs> Please, well, for my point is that some of the press coverage was rotten. The, the the guy and the gal on a news show in the morning joking about this kind of thing, and you know, obviously knowing nothing at all about the stuff. And these stories aren't new. Hastings' book's been out for a few years. Salah's book has been out. I've met them both. So, and you know, and. How do you get them to take something like this seriously? It's happened in Russia. It's happened in England. Uh, but Stan, you know, you've, run, people... you've run against this over and over again since since Roswell, for God's sake. I mean, well, you know, you it's, know, it's been systematic on the part of, of the government and the media to just uh, deny, make fun of, disinform over and over again. And so that well, was part yeah. of my question that I wanted to ask because... We hear so much about Area 51, and everybody keeps saying it doesn't exist. And it's like everybody in the entire country knows where it is and where it exists, and yet they still say, nope, nope, it's not there. It's your imagination. How does that continue to happen? Because of journalists not doing their job. Uh, And, you know, I think the government has been known to influence what gets put out in the press. On occasion, I think... uh, I am reminded of the fact when the first atom bomb was set off on July 16, 1945, in the middle of nowhere, Trinity site in New Mexico, it was seen from over 100 miles away. Uh, the skies are pretty clear in New Mexico, even though it was 5.30 in the morning. They get up early to get out of the heat. And uh, so there were calls to sheriff's departments everywhere. And a couple of days later, finally a press story went out talking about people who had seen this thing and saying uh, an ammunition dump had blown up. Fortunately, nobody was injured. They lied through their teeth, and they got away with it until a few weeks later when we destroyed uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and said, oh, by the way, our first test (laughs) was in New Mexico on July 16th. But flat-out lied. I mean, it wasn't a hedging. It was clear-cut and unambiguous. This was an ammunition dump that had blown up. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't have lied. I'm just saying that it was standard policy. We have governments that lie, well, and can keep secrets. I I get people like Dr. Seth Shostak, a nice guy. We've appeared on programs together. Uh, And he was saying governments can't keep secrets. Look, Look at FEMA and Katrina, what a lousy job the government did. And also on another program, he says, it's the same government that runs the post office, for goodness sakes. Now, why not mention the CIA, the NSA, the NSC, the DIA, all these guys who spend billions of dollars keeping secrets uh, and over a long period of time, the stealth fighter was only $10 billion, but what's a billion between friends, you know? And that was for 10 years. And the Corona spy satellite, one of my favorites, because I used to drive a Toyota Corona, and I like smoking Corona cigars. Uh, <laughs> the, the first one uh, was flown successfully in 1960. It's a spy satellite. And it got more data about Soviet military installations than all the U-2 flights that had preceded it. Did we make a big public deal about it? What? Of course, the U2 there was no either until we shot one down. Until one was shot down, then all of a sudden, oh look, yeah, we have these. Yeah, the U2 was was secret. 
and we were violating international law. And uh, you know, and finally, uh, President Eisenhower bit the bullet and said, "Yeah, it was ours. It was not something blown off course. We lied first, you understand." And then, of course, Khrushchev showed the pilot and the plane and the cameras, and whoops! Oh well. But the Kinda thing have is, to give that it up the, at that point. I mean, don't you know international law doesn't actually apply to us? I thought everyone knew. That. Uh, all right, all right. <laughs> well, above a certain height. Oh yeah, totally. But the, the, the kicker here is on the Corona spy satellite, and many of them were launched after that first one. There was no public discussion about Corona spy satellite until 1995. But they can't keep secrets. I'm not saying the Russians didn't know about it, but, uh, you know, it's like with the U-2. The United States didn't talk about it because we're violating international law. The Russians didn't talk about it until they shot one down because they didn't want to admit to their people that they couldn't do anything about it. You know, we're supposed to protect you and we're unable to do anything. So both countries kept secrets even though they weren't getting together and saying, well, you don't want to talk about this, do you? If you won't, I won't. You know, I can just see those discussions. But they each had their own purposes. And so uh, to use examples like FEMA and the post office as, as a manifestation of what secrets can be kept is absurd. These are smart people saying no, stupid ask, things. And somebody has to say, hey, yeah, let me ask you a question about Area 51 because uh, the dead redhead brought it up. Uh, and so have you ever met Bob Lazar? Uh, we've talked on the phone, and I've talked to his buddies, and I've checked him out. And oh well, I hate to say it, but he doesn't check out. He's a bright guy. He has built a rocket-powered car. He puts on uh, uh, firecracker uh, fireworks displays. But uh, when I started checking on him, uh, I found out that, uh, well, a quick rundown. D five different places at MIT never heard of him. Uh, he supposedly got a master's degree at MIT in physics. Caltech never heard of him. When I talked to his high school in New York State, uh, he graduated in August, not with his class, which normally means you had to make up a course or two, the only science course he had was chemistry, and he finished in the bottom third of his high school class. Now, there wasn't the slightest chance uh, of his getting into MIT with that kind of background. He was now, asked... Those... Say that again? Go ahead. Go ahead. He was asked uh, at uh, in Rachel, Nevada, not far from Area 51... Uh, at the little alien, he was taking questions. I've been there. <laughs> and he was, he was asked to name one of his professors. I mean, I'm a lot older than he is, and I could tell you the names of my professors from the University of Chicago. MIT is a very prestigious place. Well, first he was asked when he graduated. And to show how honest they were, they asked him, when did you get your Ph.D. from MIT? How honest Bob said... It wasn't a Ph.D., it was just a master's degree. See? Being honest. Well, let me see now. I think, yeah, it was probably 1987. And I'll tell you something. I was accepted at MIT out of high school. I couldn't afford to go there. Tuition was 900 bucks. Now it's 25000 but what the <laughs> judge how old I am. <laughs> but anyway, he, uh, anybody who graduated from MIT, and several of my classmates did, uh, knows what year they graduated and uh, believe me, they, they do. do. But he was also, when asked to name any professors, he said, uh, well, let's see now, uh, Bill Duxler, he'll remember me from Caltech Physics. Well, I'm a good detective, and I belong to the American Physical Society, which most physicists do. He doesn't, of course. Uh, and I located William Duxler, physicist. Except he never taught at Caltech. He taught at Pierce Junior College, which is within 50 miles of Caltech, but is not exactly the same caliber. And he went there at the same time as he was supposedly at MIT, 2,500 miles away. That's a very neat trick. If you can go to MIT, you don't go to Pierce Junior College. I mean, I've, I've spoken there. I've spoken at MIT, too. <laughs> so I've been to Pierce and... 
It's out in the San Fernando Valley, for those of you who know the L.A. area. I checked with Los Alamos National Lab. Now, he was in the phone book. That doesn't mean he worked for them. They include everybody who works there for subcontractors. And after his name in the phone book uh, is uh, Kirk Meyer, K slash M. That's a subcontractor. But beyond that, I gave the uh, personnel department uh, two names. One was a guy I knew from when I worked on nuclear rockets, and he worked at Los Alamos on nuclear rockets. So I gave them his name and Bob's name, just to make sure he was in the right place for employment, you know. And they found my guy. Couldn't find Bob. Sorry about that. So um, if I could summarize, nothing in his story holds together. Uh, and he also at one point said he, that Los Alamos had 500 pounds of element 115. Now, the trouble is that element 115, what we've made four atoms of it, and it's got a half-life less than a second, Ain't no way to get 500 pounds of something with that short a half-life. It's gone, you know, before you finish counting. So uh, what can I say? I'm disappointed. His buddy called me and asked, what would it take to convince me that uh, Bob was telling the truth? I said, well, you know, I'd like to see a copy of his diploma listing in uh, alumni organizations, membership in the uh, technical societies, a resume, I sent him uh, an eight-page resume. Don't use it very often, but I did. And a listing in the directories of what, the American Nuclear Society, the American Physical Society, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, University of Chicago, and copies of my diplomas. And, of course, I got back nothing. <laughs> what can I say? So, so, I mean, so what are you, you trying know, to I say tried. about Bob Lazar here? <laughs> Stop beating around the bush here. <laughs> <laughs> What do I really think? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you I'm presented is, enough evidence to let us all come to our own conclusion. I think we all know what that would be. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no question that he isn't what he says he is. He is a bright guy. I understand he's moved to Michigan. I don't know why anybody moved from Los Alamos to Michigan, uh, but anyway. Not, not so bright. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of people around, and people get mad at me. You know, you don't believe him? He's such a sincere guy. Now, do I have to tell any woman in this world that uh, you can't believe everything a man says to you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I think a better thing is, what can you believe that a man says to you? Rihanna, high five. <laughs> right, cyber high five, sending, sending, sending. All right, sending. Cut all of our secrets here. Okay, Stan, right. can, can, I, can I flip just a little bit and move sure. to another that you wrote? Uh, the Roswell Legacy with uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. and Linda Marcel. Yeah, I didn't write the book. I wrote the forward for the book. Uh, right. I've encouraged the writing of the book, and we have the same publisher. And as a matter of fact, I'm the only one UFO investigator that's been in both his house and his dad's house. His dad was in Houma, Louisiana. I was the first to talk to his dad, and I've been in uh, Jess Jr.'s house up in uh, Montana, Helena, Montana. And, uh, now, for our listeners you know, out there who don't know who Jesse Marcel was, well, okay, can his you give father, background on? yeah, his father was the intelligence officer for the 509th Atomic Bombing Group that was based in Roswell at what was originally the Roswell Army Airfield, later was Walker Air Force Base, and he was the first military guy to handle the Roswell wreckage. The rancher had gone in and talked to the sheriff. He had heard that there were rewards. This is uh, early July 1947, less than two weeks after Kenneth Arnold's famous sighting, and there were another thousand sightings over the next couple of weeks. Uh, the rancher went in uh, because he'd heard that there was a reward being offered, and I have the articles, there was such a reward being offered, a few thousand bucks, which is a lot of money then, to the sheriff's office, and the sheriff, as was, there was an agreement he would call the military base uh, for anything that might affect them. You know, it could be a, a rampaging drunk soldier or uh, some woman complaining about one of the guys not treating her right or whatever. And uh, so the sheriff calls the base, talks to Jesse, who was the duty officer on Sunday, July 6th, 
and uh, he talks to his boss, Colonel Blanchard, the head of the only atomic bombing group in the world now. This isn't a bunch of dinks with nothing better to do uh, than to make up stories about flying saucers. Gets ordered to take one of the counterintelligence corps guy, guys with him. They follow the rancher out. Because we're talking now in that, the boonies. Now, that and, rancher was uh, Mac Brazel, wasn't it? Yeah, the rancher was Mac Brazel, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've talked to his son. Now, Mac was dead long before I got involved. But uh, right. uh, they went out. They saw this huge amount of wreckage spread out over an area three-quarters of a mile long, a few hundred yards wide. They brought some of it back the next day. Uh, they stayed overnight in their sleeping bags. Jesse Jr. was 11 years old at the time, and his dad showed him some of this stuff. So he handled it uh, in the kitchen of their house in Roswell. And it was only after Jesse went to the base and uh, was ordered to take this stuff to uh, their headquarters. They were part of the 8th Air Force, which was in Fort Worth, Texas. Supposedly, he was going to go up to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But uh, once they got to uh, Fort Worth, General Ramey, who was the head of the 8th Air Force, uh, told Jesse, you, you don't say anything, I'll take care of it. He lied through his teeth, saying it was just a radar reflector weather balloon combination. That was explanation number two. First it was flying saucers, then it was radar reflector weather balloon combination, then it was a super secret mogul balloon which doesn't compute. And if it, you know, doesn't compute, you can't accept that as an explanation. And my favorite, of course, number four, was the crash test dummy business and oh, what's Lord, dumb yes. about the crash test <laughs> yeah, well, what's dumb about it is that uh, they, yes they did drop a lot of dummies but not until six years later and exactly. there are pictures of them in the air force report they're six feet tall 175 pounds and they were wearing an army air force uniform now right. uh, do you really think uh, that could be morphed down to a four foot skinny little guy with a big head and time traveled six years to account for the stories of bodies? And I don't an think Army so. intelligence officer would believe the difference, would not, would not be able to see the difference. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those absurdities. The New York Times bought it. That's all that mattered, I guess. Uh, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. And I don't want to admit that I've ignored the biggest story of the millennium for the last 60 years. <laughs> but uh, so Jesse uh, Jr., I'll see him in France, as a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks. We're speaking at a conference. They're not paying us anything, but they're paying expenses. So what the heck? <laughs> I mention that. I, I mention that because every once in a while I get a strange, well, fairly often I get strange phone calls. But one of them was, I almost didn't call you. I figured you're only in it for the money. Why do you say that? I see you on all those television programs. I don't get paid for them. What do you mean? I said, I don't get paid for that. Not even Larry King. Not even Larry King. He pays transportation. He doesn't pay meals. Uh, well, but you showed your book cover. I said, sure, it was appropriate. He makes a lot of money from the advertising, from having me on. Why shouldn't I show my book cover? <laughs> Everybody else does. <laughs> but, it, you know, so I mentioned, I'm going to France. I'm not getting paid to go there. Uh, maybe I'll sell yeah, a book. Maybe a I won't. Trip. It'll be a lovely trip, though, won't it? <laughs> well, it, it, from Fredericton, New Brunswick, where I live, I got to fly west to Montreal and then to Paris overnight. Then I got to wait uh, a few hours and go to Strasbourg, Stroudsburg, uh, which is close to the French-German border, and then repeat the process in a couple of days. And that's a long haul, believe it or not. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it because supposedly they're going to translate all the papers. My French isn't worth talking about. I certainly <laughs> don't speak in French. But uh, it, it could be fun. And uh, I've spoken in 16 countries. And, uh, yeah, you get a lot of frequent flyer points. I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the one I'm really curious about uh, is I've had some contacts from an outfit in Saudi Arabia talking about a conference in February about innovation and extraterrestrial life. And, you know, going to Saudi Arabia, I've had several people saying, Stan, you're crazy. Are you forgetting you're Jewish? 
no, I'm not forgetting it, but uh, I think they'd take care of me. I survived uh, being in Turkey, and uh, a lot of Muslims there. And I got no battle with Muslims, so we'll, we'll see. But uh, we haven't finalized that one yet. But, yeah, talk about flying saucers and see the world. Now, don't become a millionaire, because you won't. <laughs> so, Stanton, oh, at once... Yeah, we, we've, we've all kind of lived that kind of lifestyle at this point. <laughs> at, what, at what point do you think something is going to happen that is going to finally pry the lid off? Well, when some major news outfit uh, hires the Woodward and Bernsteins of the future, maybe, got an idea. I'm working on toward a movie. There's a Hollywood outfit that's optioned my life story and my book, Top Secret Magic, about the Majestic 12 documents, and right. Don Schmidt's life story and his book, Witness to Roswell, we're going to make a movie, we hope, called Magic Men, M-A-J-I-C. And uh, Bryce Zabel is in charge. He's the guy who did Dark Skies. Remember that a few years ago? Yes, very much. And if this is a the kind of dramatic combination of all the president's men and JFK that we'd like it to be, that may turn everything around and people who know stuff may open up and say, it's about time. I'm an optimist. Make sure George Clooney's in it. (laughs) Well, yeah, uh, I'll try to do that. And maybe Richard Dreyfuss will play me, huh? There you go. I see as more. We have been, we have been spending the last half hour talking to Stanton Friedman in his new book. Half hour. Science hour, was wrong. hour. I know. I know. Science. Time was travel. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. And, yeah, Sorry. the website is www.stantonfriedman.com. And there are deals. And if you buy the books from me as opposed to Amazon or uh, Barnes and Noble or Borders or whatever, you get signatures. And the books by Kathy and me, you get both our signatures. No, we do not ship books back and forth. We sign little book plates. And, uh, you know, we're pragmatic. But uh, <laughs> and go to my website. It, it lists uh, some of the places I'll be speaking. And, uh, you know, have fun. Enjoy. Maybe the next year will be the year of the saucer. How's that? Super. Want to end the show by uh, a little quote from Buzz Aldrin? History will remember the inhabitants of the 20th century as the people who went from Kitty Hawk to the moon in 66 years, only to languish for the next 30 in a low Earth orbit. At the core of a risk-free society is a self-indulgent failure of nerve. Mm. I love Buzz Aldrin. Well it's just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, Stanton, I can't uh, thank you enough for what has been the fastest been hour my we've pleasure. ever had on the show. Yeah. And please come back anytime. Book, no okay. book. You got a free hour. Drop on down and, and, and join us anytime. If you just feel the need to have- rant about the state of science in the United States or the world, feel free. <laughs> okay. Right there with you any day. Thanks, guys. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Bye, Brianna. So- before before we uh, head out for the night, I, I think we should announce the, the winners. I used my trusty oh. random number generator, and S. Dante's 13 has won the tickets to Spooky World. And awesome. I hope I'm saying this right. Nipar wins the Dirk Manning uh, initial anthology of Nightmare World. So I think Dome is going to get in touch with them. I will indeed. I will indeed. And thanks for listening, everybody. And Illustrator X. Wait, wait. Hello. Wait. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And they win if they comment on this podcast. If they comment on this podcast, they're going to win a copy of Stanton Friedman's book, Science Was Wrong, which he was kind enough to give us a copy of. If I don't come, find a way down there and steal it first. <laughs> oh, like, I'm sorry. Like, I haven't already read it. <laughs> oh Lord! Friedman's Wait. book pre-read by the dome. Absolutely, <laughs> I'll be happy to sign it for you guys. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Hey X. Yeah. Let's Walk us it. out of here. What do we got going on? All right, on the coming up calendar, 
Uh, next week, we take it down a notch with Scarewolf and the Horror Host Gang from Saturday Fright Special. On October 16th, we'll be doing our comic convention special. October 23rd, Hunter Lagore returns for the long-awaited release of The Last Man Anthology. And on November 13th, Dave Sanders and John Tallarico of RunawayCreations.com plug their latest game, Attraction. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of the Boston Comic Con and of Comic Art House, your one and only source for original comic artwork. Visit Bob and Kim at ComicArtHouse.com for the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists. Tonight's outro music provided by Zanoise. Pick up their CD, The Benevolent Beast, on iTunes. Dome. A great thanks to Stanton Friedman for what was the, one of the coolest hours we've ever had. <laughs> Rock on. From the Alston Brighton Hellmouth outside of Boston, the sweetheart of the soundboard, Kriana, thank you for all you do. You know, I just feel better now that I let those feelings out. Mm-hmm. From the Four Color Vault <laughs> comics tonight, great thanks to Illustrator X and the Dead Redhead. Good, good evening, everyone. <laughs> No, Dead Redhead, it's it's the end of the show. That's okay. I did All it right. backwards today. Uh, oh, good okay. morning. Grease in the seatings. <laughs> and this is the Dome saying, Genie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy is increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Rock on, everybody. Good night. <laughs>